All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. A little later in the program, well, not that much later. It's coming up pretty soon. I'll be speaking with Anthony Fernando. He is president and CEO of Ascensus Surgical. We'll talk about what Ascensus is up to. They're obviously working in the surgical robotic space, in the digital surgery space. They've got a cool new product called Luna that's incorporating AI and other technologies that will uh, assist surgeons. So a lot of opportunity there that a census is, is, is seeking out. It's obviously a competitive space. We'll talk about what uh, Tony sees the surgical robotic space looking like in the future, but we'll learn a lot more about uh, a census surgical. So it was great to have Tony Fernando on the program. But first, we usually have our, our new markers, newsmakers here, or our newsmakers element here. We're not going to do that this week. Uh, the big news of the week for me is we unveiled the agenda for Device Talks West, which of course is happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. And uh, you can go to west.devicetalks.com or just go to devicetalks.com. You can find a link to the uh, conference website there. Uh, you can take a look at the uh, speaker page. It looks terrific. You can take a look at the agenda. Equally terrific. It's not quite done yet. We have our uh, our starting lineup in there for sure, not to diminish anyone else who's coming later, but we've got a, a great nine right now, uh, one through nine and more. Uh, there's going to be a, a lot of terrific conversations led by uh, Imperative Care, Abbott, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, Stryker, Dexcom. We'll have Dexcom for the first time, happy to say. Uh, Insulate will be making a presentation. Happy to have Insulate at Device Talks West, and more and more and more. I'm forgetting some, uh, but I also don't need to mention. I don't need to read the whole agenda out to you. You can go to devicetalks.com or west.devicetalks.com to find the agenda your, uh, yourself. And again, we'll be building that out in uh, in the coming weeks. We'll be adding speakers in the coming weeks. We're uh, we're we're actually doing four tracks of discussions at Device Talks West this year. Last year we only did three, so this is a bigger event. Uh, and and last year was great. It was so much fun to be uh, in Santa Clara and to draw from that uh, robust medical device industry there. So we're going to amp it up this year. Um, and I'm really proud of the content we're providing. Uh, it's going to be great for engineers. It's going to be great for entrepreneurs. It's going to be great for manufacturers. It's going to be great for everyone who's working hard to get medical devices conceived, uh, to get them manufactured, and to get them out on the market. So go to devicetalks.com for more information about that. Our keynote addresses look great. Actually, they're in interviews. I'll be probably leading most of them. We'll have Hani Abuhala from Johnson & Johnson MedTech. He's the company group chairman of robotics and digital surgery. We'll have Dave Rosa, president of Intuitive. They'll be our day two keynote interviews. Dave will lead off day two. Hani will uh, will wrap up the conference. I'm mentioning that because uh, we are uh, uh, sharing those keynotes with our colleagues on the robotics side of our business. They'll be putting on two large robotics-oriented events, Robo Business and the Field Robotics Engineering Forum. So you can check that out. You can find the links on devicetalks.com as well. On day one, I'll kick off the entire conference speaking with Julie Tyler. She's Senior Vice President and Head of Vascular at Abbott. 
And uh, we'll wrap up day one with an interview that I'll do with Fred Kasravi. He, of course, is CEO and chairman of Imperative Care. I've never actually uh, had the opportunity to speak with Fred directly, so I'm excited about that. Uh, I haven't... uh, haven't it I don't I've been interviewing people for a long time so I get particularly excited when I can do new interviews and uh actually I haven't spoke with Hani or Julie Tyler as well so uh it's going to be a, a fun time for me so please go to devicetalks.com check out the agenda we are still in our early bird rate or our early rate registration period if you register now you'll only pay 395 uh, it'll go up to six ninety five after uh, in mid August. So I I wouldn't wait. I mean honestly I, I understand three ninety five isn't not a lot of money, but for the work that we're putting into the agenda for the folks we'll have in the room, uh, for the opportunities you'll have to network, to build your skill set, to build your engineering understanding, to know how leaders in the space are doing it, it really is a great investment for you or for your employer. So I do recommend jumping in on the early bird rate. Uh, and, and not waiting until the price goes up to six ninety five. So that's it. I'm not going to sell you anymore. But uh, we we work hard uh, to keep prices down. Everything is going up. Everything is more expensive. Uh, we really worked hard to to ensure that this conference is accessible to everyone in medtech, uh, and it's accessible to the folks who are doing the daily work, the innovating, the designing, the engineering. We'll have a great exhibit floor with a lot of our partners there who can help you design and manufacture your devices better. So uh, this this is an event for you. So that's it. No more sales pitches. But before we get into the interview with uh, Anthony Fernando, I did want to talk a bit about the process of how I develop the Device Talks agendas. It's interesting in that a big part of the process is you, is our podcast listeners listeners of Device Talks Weekly, listeners of Boston Scientific Talks, listeners of Abbott Talks, Striker Talks, Intuitive Talks, Medtronic Talks. By putting out, putting together these podcasts, by interviewing these medtech leaders, and by sharing those conversations with you out in podcast land, I'm able to see what topics are resonating, uh, what speakers are connecting. And I really do take that input in when I'm putting together a device talks agenda. I've done that in Boston. I did that at the two meetings last year. So I don't have a big advisory board of folks who are directing me to people. What I have are the connections that I'm creating by putting these podcasts together. And I'm having the feedback from you, our listeners. So you are, in essence, my advisory board. You are the podcast listeners, really the ones who are responsible for uh, for the agendas I'm putting together. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you're taking time to listen. I'm grateful that you're subscribing. I'm grateful that you're providing feedback on social media. So just know that that feedback, those listens, those plays, they are looked at <laughs> and and they are considered when I'm putting together these agendas. So we'll draw from some older uh, some older podcasts. I'll, I'll I'll play a clip right now. Uh, one of the first people I reached out to to for Device Talks West was CL Tian. She is CEO of Fiex Technologies, which has a, a fantastically innovative new way of uh, medtech medical device sterilization. Because of course we know that the problems with EO. So uh, I I actually knew CL before. We had her on the podcast, but talking with her and really understanding what FIAX is up to was fascinating. And I and I knew at the time I wanted to have her at an upcoming meeting. So I'm just going to play a quick clip from my interview with CLT on uh, just, just a minute. And just to give you a sense of what 
we talked about, I'm sure many of you remember the conversation, but this is what got me so excited about FIAX technologies and why I wanted to have them on a Device Talks conference agenda. Let's listen. Yours is an interesting company, and I want to get into it right away and then find out a bit about your background, because most of the folks we've talked to, and I think the other finalists, for the most part, uh, develop devices to help people. You're actually developing a technology that hopefully will help the industry and its problem with uh, with sterilization. So before we get into your backstory a bit, uh, introduce our, our listeners to, to FIAX Technologies. Sure. Yes, we definitely are uh, used to being an odd duck in a sense. So FIAX Technologies is uh, helping the industry transition out of ethylene oxide use for terminal sterilization. And how we do that is we have a proprietary self-sterilizing material, uh, which allows medical device makers to sterilize in their manufacturing plant without the use of capital equipment and without relying on third-party facilities. And our materials are light activated, which means uh, now we can actually customize sterilization to you, whether companies want to develop flexible chamber applications of this, or they're looking at integrating it into their existing packaging technology. So, uh, so how is this done? What is your, what is your technology? So essentially what our customers see is uh, a form of packaging, right? And how it's applied is say you have a device you've assembled, you've pouched in your primary packaging, rather than putting it into the shipper box and ultimately the pallet, you can have the option of either dropping it into a pre-made pouch, a number of those, and sterilizing, sealing that, sterilizing it that way under light exposure. Or there are companies that we're working with that are developing ways to put it into their primary packaging. So now you're sterilizing in the primary packaging with the primary packaging. So we're really uh, enabling a paradigm shift, Tom, from what used to be, which is you ask the sterilizer, okay, how many pallets can we fit into your chamber? Right. And how many items can we jam on this pallet to how can we customize the sterilization to our manufacturing line and get the maximum efficiencies there? So as you can see, it's just it's a mind blowing technology for me. And it's it's something that I wanted to explore uh, more broadly at a device talks meeting. So we'll have CLTN on a panel uh, alongside others who are developing new technologies for uh, medical device sterilization. You can find the, the uh, discussion online. We're adding speakers to that as well. So uh, that, that panel will get bigger. That's happening on day one. Uh, similarly, I, I had a recent conversation with Ariel Sutton. She's general manager of stroke at Imperative Care. And uh, I try to do my due diligence when I go into these conversations. Uh, but sometimes I learn, well, often I learn things that that in these interviews that maybe I should have picked up on before, maybe not. But uh, one of the things was the way that, uh, that in my conversation with Ariel Sutton of Imperative Care was how they're exploring uh, robotics as part of a, a way to uh, increase their reach into the neurovascular market. So uh, I'm going to play this clip that uh, uh, came from the interview that I did with Ariel Sutton, which we just ran last month or, yeah, about last month. But uh, it, it caused me to, after we ran, after I've completed the interview, after we ran that episode, I knew I wanted to have imperative care involved in the program. So not only is Fred Kasravi going to be a keynote interview guest uh, at the end of day one, but at the start of day one, uh, or late in the morning of day one, 
uh, Ariel will will be on a panel along with others from Imperative Care and some of their partner organizations talking about how they're improving uh, the patient journey for uh, for stroke patients. So, or people who have had strokes or people who are at risk of strokes. So uh, let's listen to this quick clip from Ariel Sutton. Again, she's general manager of stroke at Imperative Care. Of the robotics programs out there, they're really looking at how do you develop a robot, right? And then they're looking at using others instrumentation. Where we really see the success for imperative care is we have catheters that are becoming the standard of care, right? With with one and three being pulled. And, you know, we're continuing to innovate. So we have the access to the tools that are being used in these procedures and now have the advantage of really being able to take that same system approach that we used for removing the clot. And now we can apply that same system approach to how do we create a robot and catheter technology combined system that will allow more patients to be treated? Because, you know, we talked about that one in five are being treated today. We see that advancing to, to two and five with our technology with this robotic solution of changing the ability for patients to get that access, we believe we'll get this to, to four and five patients being treated. Wow. Okay. Finally, uh, again, I'm really excited to have the imperative care panel there. What I've done with imperative care with others, I've just reached out to them and say, hey, I really enjoyed this topic. Uh, I really would love you to come and talk about something that that you have had success at, that you, a problem you have overcome and I'd like you to share those details with our attendees at Device Talks West. So that's how we're getting conversations from Dexcom. That's how we're getting conversations from Abbott, conversations from Insulate, conversations from Medtronic, Boston Scientific, et cetera. Go to the agenda, check it out. Uh, but we're really happy to be bringing these perspectives and insights to Device Talks West. Finally, uh, I just want to share a quick clip with uh, Dave Rosa. He's president of Intuitive. He just became president. I interviewed him late last year, early this year. Uh, we had him on the Intuitive Talks podcast at the time. He wasn't president. So I'm excited to find out what that uh, promotion means for Dave uh, and what it means for Intuitive. Uh, I, I love, I'll ask him about whether this is a succession move. He's been at Intuitive as long as, as uh, CEO Gary Guthard has been. So I don't know what the long-term plans is. It, um, it's clear that with a new title will come new responsibilities for Dave Rosa. So we'll talk about that, but we'll also talk about where Intuitive head, headed into the future. And I'm just going to, I pulled another cool clip or a cool clip from Dave Rosa's interview uh, that it just gave me a glimpse of the type of technologies that Intuitive is working on to advance the use of its surgical robotic systems. So let's listen to Dave Rosa. On the technology side, I would say there are probably maybe two areas that I, because there's a lot, don't, so I could talk forever. Maybe two areas that, that I think about a lot and that I'm really excited about. So I don't think in order to improve surgery and take it from where kind of we are today, that you need a better grasper or a wrist that bends a little bit more. That, that's not the core of what's going to take outcomes forward. I'm not so excited about saying, hey, guess what, Tom? We're going to produce a seven millimeter wrist versus an eight millimeter wrist. What I get really excited about is how can we help surgeons see more about what they're doing? And so if you, when you watch surgery, you watch, quote, an experienced, really good surgeon versus someone who's not so experienced and, quote, not so good, 
it's not that one can manipulate the, the instrument better than the other. They're both very technically competent. Typically has a lot more to do about tissue planes and the subtleties of where bleeding might occur and where it won't occur. You know, where is something that really matters like a ureter or nerves or something else? You know, it's the knowledge of the anatomy. And so how do we help that? How do we help expedite that and make it so that you don't need a thousand cases to learn that sort of anatomical variation? And so fluorescence guided surgery is a big piece of this puzzle where you can inject a fluorescing marker into the body and using infrared lasers in the system, it lights up and it, it looks, uh, it, it's pretty amazing. And so we have a, a molecule in development that's specific to prostate cancer, for example. And, you know, you can turn on, inject the drug, turn on the, on the infrared laser and see the prostate cancer. And if the surgeon has resected the prostate, but happens to leave some behind, they can go back out and, and resect that and work for a negative margin. So, and that's not possible in white light imaging. So I get, mm. you know, and there's other things, hyperspectral, all these other modalities that are out there that can help the surgeon sort of un better understand what he or she is looking at in the field. And it could be cancer, nerves, you know, vasculature, ureter, whatever it may be. And that, that to me is sort of a, a huge piece of the puzzle Okay, so as you can see, I'm, I'm really excited to have uh, these guests from the podcast in person. Uh, I'll get to meet them all for the first time, uh, which is always great. Uh, it's wonderful to do a Zoom call, but it's great to meet people in person. But I'm just really so excited to be kind of con concentrating a year or more worth of podcast uh, discussions and insights into a two-day event at Device Talks West. It's going to be a terrific event. Uh, again, we're adding speakers uh, daily, so you'll have to keep checking Device Talks West for more updates. We actually have a, a latest page on the devicetalks.com uh, website that'll tell you of additions we're making and, and, and things like that. We'll try to keep you up to date. But the best thing to do is just keep going and checking up. And, of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. We'll be posting that that information on uh, on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. So, so I hope you'll join us at Device Talks West. Um, it, again, it, we, you have about a month until the early bird rate expires, uh, and it's three ninety five. So it's really a great deal. It's going to be a great two days. We've got some great insights, great people for you to meet. So uh, please do consider joining us at Device Talks West. Again, it's happening October eighteenth and nineteenth at the Santa Clara Convention Center. And whether or not you attend, I do want to thank you for being part of the uh, advisory board that helps me put together the Device Talks agendas. You're the ones who are engaged with our podcast. You're the ones who are telling me on social media what you liked about this or, or don't like about that. So please continue doing that. Continue listening. Continue engaging. Continue to tell your friends about Device Talks podcasts. Uh, our Device Talks podcast network is growing. We're working on even more projects. Myself and, and our managing editor, Kayleen Brown, will have some announcements coming up in a couple of months or so of new pro new projects we're working on. And Kayleen Brown will be at Device Talks West as well. So thank you all for your uh, participation in Device Talks. I really hope you'll come to Device Talks West and say hello. One of the best parts of uh, Device Talks Boston was just as I was walking from conversation to conversation, interview from interview, people were stopping me and just saying hi. They shared that there were uh, listeners of the podcast, and it was really gratifying for me to meet folks. 
like that. So if you do come to Vice Talks West and you do see me and you see Kayleen Brown or you see Chris Newmark and you see Sean Uli there, uh, make sure you say hello. And uh, we, we love to build our, our, not only our social media networks, but our person to person network. So that will be a great opportunity to do that, not only with us, but with hundreds in the medical device industry who will be in attendance. So go to devicetalks.com to register for Device Talks West, finally, again, October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Okay, that's uh, all I'll talk to you about. Uh, that's our intro for the day. Those are uh, That's our newsmaker of the, of the week. Uh, I'm going to now play the interview I did with Tony Fernando, CEO of Ascensus Surgical. And uh, I really do hope you'll join us at Device Talks West. Well, Anthony Fernando, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here and glad, thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. It's great to catch up on the Ascensa story. I know you launched Luna earlier this year, and I want to learn more about that and understand where it might ultimately fit into uh, into the clinical space. But before we get into uh, technology talk, let's uh, learn about the person, about yourself. Looking at your career, it looks like you got your start in robotics, right? At least one of your earlier jobs on your profile is in robotics. Was that your first gig out of college? Was that where your career was headed? Yeah, I mean, strangely, right out of graduate school, I was developing robots for the Department of Energy, U.S. Department of Energy to wow. uh, move around nuclear waste out of all industries. So that was the beginning and moved into life sciences. Interesting. Devices, so. so these robots would be in a nuclear plant or like somewhere in a mountain somewhere moving the waste or... or... Yeah, these were these were robots underground at uh, Yaka Mountain yep. uh, in the Nevada desert, and then the waste would come in containers, and uh, uh, we would move them using robots. And then I was specifically working on an inspection robot that would go inspect the canisters and the tunnels to make sure everything is in order where humans couldn't go. So it was pretty hot. That's interesting. Wow. So you, you started there, but it looks like you you moved almost immediately over to uh, to life sciences at at, at Varian or formerly Vankel. What led to that move? I mean, it, it was kind of you know, young, aspiring engineer, just right out of graduate school, going into a government job at the time was not very exciting. <laughs> Get out <laughs> of town. Good stuff. I mean, it was good stuff, good technology, but was looking for a little bit more excitement. So that's kind of when I found this uh, more of a startup uh, in the life science space who was looking to do some robotics automation for pharmaceutical testing and thought, okay, that there might be a more exciting opportunity. So kind of moved away, but same technology or similar technology, but moved into more of the pharma side and the life science side and kind of started the, the private sector. Your government pension would have been huge by now. Think about that. <laughs> but uh, and this was in '99, so there was also the whole technology dot com boom, build a company, become rich kind of stuff going on. So I'm sure a lot played in your decision. What was it that you remained in the life sciences? Uh, you know, you obviously you build a career, you stay in a, stay in an industry. But what have you enjoyed about being in life sciences? You've worked both in pharma and on uh, on medical devices. I think the, the the biggest thing that continues to keep me is there's so much opportunity to make things better on either side. And and you can actually see the impact. And, and it's a meaningful impact and it's a good contribution to the population overall. 
Uh, we are all concerned about health. So on, on the pharma side, it was about how do we improve the quality of dosage forms? How do we make sure it continues to stay potent? How do you make sure that it's, you know, can withstand all the supply and, and uh, global manufacturing and things like that? So you, you see the result and you know, hey, when a patient gets a pharmaceutical product that it is going to do its job. And, and we were kind of a cog in that chain. So that was kind of fulfilling. And, and then moving on to medical devices, the same thing, right? You know, at Beckton Dickinson uh, is working on injection and infusion products, primarily for the emerging markets to try to say, how do we bring these cutting edge technologies, you know, reduce infections and things like that? How do we bring it to the emerging markets in Asia Pacific? And we saw the result, we were able to get products out. So things like that. So I, I think it's really the the meaning and kind of the fulfillment you get by seeing your contributions kind of put into practice. Sure. A number of those positions you had both at BD and looks like Perk and Elmer as well were in uh, in Singapore and Stryker as well. Uh, yeah. How did you find your way over, over there? And how long were you out there for? Seems like a good, yes. good long time. It's almost a little over eight years in Singapore. So Perkin Elma at the time, because Varian uh, was about to be acquired by Agilent, and I was kind of looking for something, and then Perkin Elma came along, and they want to do R&D and want to try to establish something in Asia Pacific. They didn't have an R&D in Asia Pacific at the time. Kind of raised my hand and said, yeah, why not? You know, done R&D in the U.S. and have... Uh, you know, kind of an Asian heritage. So why not go to Singapore? It's a kind of a soft landing in Asia overall. So kind of took that and uh, started the journey there and then moved from uh, uh, building teams for uh, Perkin Elma, then joined uh, Beckton Dickinson, and then finally Stryker before coming back. It's very interesting. I think very interesting to see the differences in cultures. Yeah. And, and how you execute and implement R&D projects. And it's long hours because you have to work with the U.S. Wow. Uh, kind of 12-hour 12 12 time difference. So it was long days, alternate kind of working hours. But it was nice because not, not a whole lot of companies were in, in the region at the time. Where did you uh, grow up? Uh, originally, I grew up in Sri Lanka. Okay. Grew up in Sri Lanka and then after high school came to the U.S. in the late 80s. So in in, in the global neighborhood, I suppose, not not Yes, not, right not, not exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Talking with folks about career development, talk to some folks, particularly folks who were born and raised in the U.S., talk about the value of being based overseas because you do get that exposure to a different way of doing things and you sort of have to learn how to communicate more succinctly. It's not your native language, so you have to be clear with your your instructions. It is, has been said that that's like one year overseas is is like three years of development in the U.S. But conversely, I've also heard that moving overseas, you know, kind of gets you out of the game, gets you out of sight of the people making decisions, and can slow your career. Do you have an opinion on that? If someone were to come and ask you, what would you do? Would you advise someone to go overseas or tell them to, to stay close to home? I would very highly encourage people to go overseas mm-hmm. because it, it really, the the value that it brings, it, it help, definitely helps you grow and de- develop and get a whole another perspective. And more importantly, it makes you appreciate 
the abundance that we actually have in the U.S. Because we don't have the abundance of resources uh, in certain parts of the world, but still people are very talented, very creative, and they make things work. So once you have that appreciation and you come back, you actually appreciate what you already had a ton more. Uh, going there, so I, I do. I, I do think so, but yeah, it is a distance, but it's how you manage it. I think you know, it's nobody's gonna send you off to Asia somewhere and say, "Okay, see you in twelve months." Right? <laughs> On the roll, you need to make frequent trips. I mean, I used to come back to the US every month. Uh, wow! And make sure I had enough face time with the companies headquarters at, at different companies, so there was very frequent touch points and. Goal was trying to bridge the two sides, and and it, it worked out quite nicely. Do you think Zoom has uh, alleviated that somewhat? I would think it has reduced. I mean, if if I were if someone were to ask me to travel back and forth to Asia every month, I would not sign up. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't yeah. sound great. Yeah, right. but I think you know technologies have evolved. All the video conferencing and and things like that would definitely reduce that distance. Well, that's great. That, and that brings us into our, our technology part of the, of the conversation. Let's learn about a census. You, you joined the company in 2015 as, according to your LinkedIn profile, Vice President of International Development. The company was known as Transenterics at the time. What drew you to this opportunity? And was this the first move back to the U.S. from Singapore? It looks like it was. Yeah, it, it was. So before coming in, I mean, North Carolina was home. So we were looking to come back to North Carolina. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I came about Transenterics at the time. And, and Transenterics at the time was they were looking to acquire this company out of Italy. And so that's that was my role was to execute on this acquisition, mm-hmm. acquire the robot and then do the integration and then work on regulatory and things like that. So that's kind of when I joined in, in 2015, about a month after we moved back. And did completed the acquisition a few months later and started integrating the technology, started working on regulatory. And that was kind of the starting point coming back. So what was it about the opportunity at Transenterics that was appealing to you? I mean, surgical robotics was already established as a, an emerging field. Uh, Stryker had made its acquisition. Intuitive was in full operation. Others were looking at the space. Did you identify the company as a promising company or the field as a promising field? Probably a combination of both. But what was the decider? I think it's definitely a combination of both, uh, Tom. But here, here's the thing, right? When you think about the broader industry of robotics and technology, if you were to look at automotive or any other industrial application of automation and robotics, you see certain trends. And the trends are that when you deploy an automation strategy or a robotic strategy, you see quality improve you see cost coming down and whatever the work you do becomes more productive. That is kind of, you see that in every industry, but you don't see that in surgery. You know, cost didn't come down, outcomes didn't improve a whole lot and productivity didn't improve either. So I came into robotics saying, okay, there is an opportunity to make some significant gains and try to make sure that technology and robotic deployment in surgery could also yield the same benefits that all the other industries have gotten. So that was kind of the underlying reason why I chose robotics and then transenterics at the time I I thought was 
had some of the shared some of those values to say they want to do that they were mm-hmm. trying to say how do we bring in technology at a reasonable cost and be able to demonstrate the value for trying to do that so i think those are the kind of two things that came about there's definitely an opportunity in the industry and you know even even at that point or even today adoption still remains pretty low globally so there's still more opportunity and i think the opportunity at the time was to say how do we address the fundamentals of value by deploying technology and then try to leverage that a little more do you think surgical robotics or the or is the outlier in that model and that it's only or where technology is not bringing down healthcare or is it healthcare overall as you were talking i was trying to think of instances where new technology was brought into a hospital setting or a healthcare setting and has brought down costs and improved productivity i'm sure it's happened but healthcare just seems to healthcare overall seems just to be a stubborn industry when it comes to adopting new technologies and, and using them well yeah i mean yeah you're right i mean healthcare in general given all the complexities of uh, privacy and reality yeah. of patient and outcomes and i mean there's somebody's life behind it so it is not a easy space to navigate that that is a factor and it has added value in certain parts of healthcare i wouldn't say it's overall healthcare but specifically in terms of surgery there's an opportunity and it could be better and and it's i would it, it's it has to all come together right the or mm-hmm. the team in the or the hospital administration the surgeon and the technology they all have to come together because you know even if you think about or it's not the, the or doesn't just do one job they do all kinds of procedures i mean they do variety of it so there is other different level of uh, complexity that takes place so it's not just a, a single vertical that is trying to be solved but again we believe that there is a solution that can be deployed to help achieve the productivity gain the cost benefit and and also greater penetration of technology use in uh, in, in in surgery interesting so you became president and ceo in november 2019 i believe company i think you were involved with the, re- the renaming of the company of census a year or two after where was the company at that point when you took over where did it need to change where did it need to do things differently i think you know the we were changing from just being a robotics company to being more of a digital surgery a more of a digital surgical solution company so that was kind of that transition at the latter part of 2019 because we had made a few acquisitions and brought in some technology and we acquired MST technologies in 2018 to really move into this digital space so as a you know when i took over and tried to look at the company I said okay one we are we continue to be seen as a robotics company yes we use robotic technology but there's nobody in the space who's focused on augmented intelligence machine learning machine vision kind of technologies because we said that you know we we believe that that was a fundamental layer that will change because robotics existed and robotics been around for 20 plus years and all it did was manipulate two instruments but still there was still variability there was a large amount of variability that contributed to cost and certain levels of waste in terms of time and and not being able to deliver consistent outcomes so 
that's where we wanted to really move more into the digital uh, space and and that's when we renamed the company to to try to get recognition and reestablish ourselves as more of a, a digital surgical solutions company rather than just a robot yes we have a robot but what we do is far more than the robot by bringing in and and moving in all the the digital elements so define if you would digital surgery i know i know what it it implies and i think i know what it means but it seems to be that the, the term seems to be industry-wide, not just you, but like a bit of rebranding. Like people aren't saying surgical robotics anymore. They're saying digital surgery. And I understand why. But if you're talking to someone at a barbecue, how do you describe how do you describe digital surgery? I would say that, you know, very simply, if you were to think of surgery today, right? And and there's one person who can see and make decisions. And that is the surgeon. The surgeon can see the camera, surgeon can see the image, and whatever the surgeon instructs the robotic manipulator to do, it's going to do. Uh, right or wrong, it's going to imp- execute it, implement it. But now, when you integrate digital technology, the way that even we've done it through machine vision, you're doing one more thing. You're, you're giving the robot a set of eyes. Now, in addition to the surgeon, the robot now has eyes and the robot can see Robot can see anatomy and robot can now help the surgeon prevent something that could not happen by accident, by mistake. So now you're adding a layer of protection to the surgeon and a layer of confidence to the surgeon to say, hey, I have a digital assistant who's looking out for me all the time. Yes, I have to focus, just like backing up your car, right? You have a backup camera. It's not just a camera. It'll beep. It'll hit the brakes if you try to hit something. So so now it's one less thing for you to think about. So it's that additional layer that gets brought into view for the surgeon so that the surgeon can now focus with significantly less cognitive fatigue, you know, really don't have to think about everything now. The surgeon now has a digital assistant to make sure that the surgeon stays in the lane and performs the function and keeps getting additional information that otherwise a surgeon would have had to rely primarily on their expertise and also keep their guard up all the time saying, okay, I need to look out for five, six things at the same time. So that's kind of how I would define digital surgery is that the ability for the technology to see and guide you and, and be a bouncing board of some sort to exchange information. Are surgeons asking for this? I mean, surgeons were not asking for this, but now after after they've seen, especially after they've seen what we demonstrated and we have gotten approval and it's in clinical use, now surgeons are beginning to say, oh, now can you do this with it? Can you do that with it? Can you maybe combine two, two other things you have and create me an application to perform this procedure in this way so that I can be consistent? So after uh, uh, in introducing it, it has been extremely well received and, and we are getting more and more input from surgeons as to what they would like to see because now we've proven it can be done. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what, what your offerings are. So you've changed the name of the company's census and it has been for a couple of years. What are your product offerings? You have the Senhance system and then we can talk about Luna, which I referred to at the, at the top, which is not commercially available at the moment. So what is currently commercially available from a census? Yeah, so we have the Senhance platform 
as a standalone three or four arm robotic platform. Then we also have the intelligent surgical unit that we refer to as the ISU, which can be added to the, the base Sennheiser platform. And the ISU is the intelligent machine vision uh, component that brings all the digital tools. So we have a suite of tools that we offer today, currently work with the Sennheiser system. So that is the, the product offering uh, that we currently have on the market. It's the Sennheiser plus the uh, ISU that work. Uh, in combination. That's the current offering on the market. And where is that available? It's available globally. I mean, we are regulatory cleared, uh, obviously, FDA with the US, CE marked for many countries in Europe, approved in Japan, Taiwan. So we, we have a global presence. We've completed over 10,000 cases today using the Sennheiser platform together with the ISU. Uh, so we are available globally and and. Uh, continuing to perform cases every day and, and growing too. I think last year we posted, you know, 28, 29% growth over prior year. And this year we are on track for that level of procedure growth. So we are seeing very strong adoption of the technology. And with Senhance, where are you finding that growth? I imagine that you're converting facilities. Well, first of all, let me know if you're working with hospitals or ASCs or both, but are, are you selling into into facilities that don't currently have a system or are you jockeying with other surgical robotic companies to have someone choose your system over theirs or even replace their system with yours i think we're seeing both uh, tom you know there are sites today that never got into robotics because of cost yeah and they are looking at our system and saying okay we like your per procedure cost which is very similar to laparoscopy so it's not going to increase our operating cost therefore we want to go with Sennheiser. So we have seen that. And also there are hospitals which already have robotics, primarily Da Vinci. And they've said, fine, you know, we are very happy with Da Vinci that's performing in two other departments, but we want, we have some higher volume procedures and we would like to work on Sennheiser for these higher volume laparoscopic procedures and do Sennheiser. So I would say it's probably a 50-50, 50% of the places where we are currently at, they do not have any other robotic platform, and then the other 50% say already have a robot in place and we are also present. So uh, it is really about the technique and and the preference of the the surgical team, right? Like Senhance primarily caters to the laparoscopic surgeon. Okay. Surgeon who's already trained in laparoscopy does not need to be retrained. We go through our day and a half, two day training program, they're up and running with pretty good outcomes. So that's kind of the, the difference. And and cost being very similar to laparoscopy, they don't have to go to different committees and get approvals and things like that because cost is going to stay pretty much the same as laparoscopy. And are, are you selling Sennhance as a single purchase price? Are you, are you doing a subscription? Is it robotic as a service? How's that, how are you pricing this? Yeah, we're doing both. I mean, uh, you know, when we sell, we go through distributors, we normally sell the product outright. But otherwise, in, in, in Western Europe and, and even in the US, we have gone into more of an operating leasing model where have we established kind of a monthly fee and, and also say how many procedures are in that package uh, that is offered on a monthly basis. And, and then they get to do up to the certain number of procedures. So it, it, it's, it's both, and, and we are kind of being flexible depending on the ask. 
Now let's talk about, about Luna. You're calling it an integrated digital surgery solution. How does it differ from Senhance? Does it fit into it? And what functions do you expect it will be able to provide once it's available? And, and we can talk about when that will happen later on. No, I think overall, uh, Tom, I mean, we're super, super excited about Luna because it's not just trying to build another robotic platform. We've been on the market, we've done over 10,000 cases, and we've understood what are the things that surgeons and OR teams appreciate, what are the things that they don't really care about, and what are the things they're hoping that will happen in the future. So we've had the time by being on the market to actually understand all of that. And based on that, we created this Luna digital platform because it's multi-component. Yes, there's a robotic manipulation piece and there'll be a ISU-like digital element to it. And it caters to more than the surgeon. Yes, it has a nice user interface that will help the surgeon perform surgery better and be more ergonomic in terms of the physical element and also the cognitive element. And then third, it will also factor in all the needs and wants of the OR team. How easy it is to set up in the room. How can you turn the room over in a very significantly fast uh, kind of uh, time frame and bring in one patient or not? And what if you do a robotic case and what if the next case you do not want to use robotics and you want to use uh, uh, laparoscopy or open surgery, can that room still be used for that purpose? So we factored all of that and be able to make a very, uh, you know, collaborative uh, kind of a robotic platform, a digital platform that actually works with all the different stakeholders that contribute to a successful outcome. And then all of this, we call it digital surgical platform, is all going to be cloud enabled. So it will have a cloud component. You'll be able to see the performance. How did surgery go? How did it start seeing trends? And be able to provide that feedback to the institutions to say, okay, how can we improve? Provide that feedback to the surgeons to say, how can we improve this? Or how can I learn from it? So it, it's a very, it's a fundamentally, it's a, a digital platform built from the ground up, from all taking all the learnings into into account from what we've gotten with Senhats. This is for open surgery as opposed to Senhats, which is laparoscopic, or are they both will be able to be used for both of them? Yeah, so Luna, Luna will be able to do both. It'll we will, you know, the our goal is to be flexible to offer both operating modalities where a, sen, a surgeon who's trained on laparoscopy will benefit from using laparoscopic motions on the console. And a surgeon who's trained on open surgery will be able to operate in an open mode or free motion mode where it could cater to that surgeon's, specific surgeon's uh, training. And I know you spoke with uh, Sean Hooley earlier this year. At the time, you, you said uh, you hope to get Luna to regulars by the end of next year, 2024 possibly getting into the market by the middle of 2025. Are those numbers still uh, what your, your goals? Yeah, those are still our goals and, and it's uh, very ambitious. But I mean, I think we have a fantastic team, you know, who has a ton of experience. Again, this is not their first time building a robot. They've done this before. Our team, the digital team, they've now built the ISU. They have that behind their back. Our regulatory team, they've done all the global regulatory work on Senhan. So, 
we have a pretty seasoned team, a small team, but a very competent seasoned team. So we are executing. That is our plan. Uh, we hope to get Luna into the regulators by end of 2024 and expecting approvals you know, in the middle of 25. How do you expect this to play out? I mean, surgical robotics is a in digital surgery. There is a lot of competition. There's a lot of companies coming at it from a lot of different directions. They can't all be successful. How do you differentiate yourself from the crowd? Obviously, functionality. But how do you see this playing out broadly for the industry? Do you see there just being two or three providers at the end of this selling a few systems? Do you see 10, 20, 30 providers of surgical systems? What does this look like in, say, just say five years? I won't ask you to go 10 years because who knows what's going to happen in 10 years. But how, how does this develop, this industry? I think there'll be several players in the market, Tom. I mean, today, globally, if you look at uh, robotic penetration, it's probably 5 to 6%. So I think there's plenty of opportunity for three, four, five companies to have a meaningful uh, presence in the robotic space. In order to compete, I think a few things need to be right. One, it has to be economical value-added solution. I don't think there is a lot of interest to spend a lot more on an operating cost basis for similar outcomes. However, there are benefits to be harnessed if the economics were not to change from an operating cost point of view, if it could improve productivity or improve the well-being of uh, surgeons and the teams, it, there is a reason to adopt. And also, it can't be... Uh, a single purpose robot. I think whatever the technology has to be broad enough to cater to the surgical needs, whether it's in a main hospital or in an ASC setting, whether you're doing an oncology case in the morning and doing a benign case in the afternoon. I think once a hospital and, and an OR team and surgeons invest in a technology, they want to be able to have that flexibility to pick and choose how and what they want to do. They don't want to be using one robot for one procedure, moving to another robot right. for another procedure. So I think having that breadth is going to be important. I mean, there's going to be specialization, right? There are certain systems that are going to do a better job at a certain specific task, and those will continue. But I think there's going, like for us, the, our biggest focus is focusing on higher volume because we know we can deliver high volume cases without increasing operating costs. That is like our focus. We are not going for highly specialized, highly, not that we can't do or will be able to do highly complex procedures, but we know that there's a lot of high volume procedures that we can do without really disrupt, without you know, hurting the, uh, the financials of an institution. So that's, that's our main target. And then we will also have the capability to perform the complicated cases. So now it becomes more of a, a broader platform that it gets very easy to bring in, you know, engage it into the room, take it out, want to, and do a simple, you know, 20-minute gallbladder or do a some kind of a complex uh, colorectal case that takes uh, several hours. It still should be uh, flexible enough to perform. So by high volume, you're talking about procedures that, that are simple enough that can just be done quickly, you'll, you'll be able to help the surgeons perform them even more quickly, even faster and safely, of course. Yeah. I mean, you look at some of the benign gynecology cases and, and general surgery cases, there's a lot of volume. And 
for one again you can't today it's prohibitive to use robotics on those higher volume simple cases because you just can't justify cost the operating cost in order to perform that procedure two more questions i've heard the low penetration numbers for hospitals that have acquired or are currently using surgical robotic systems do you see that number is it ever going to be close to 100% or are there only like 10 or 20% of hospital systems that are even suitable for a surgical robotic system? How do you, how do you view the ceiling on that? I think there's a good 30-40% uh, penetration opportunity for technology in surgery. But the biggest barrier is going to be cost and value. I think if the cost equation can be addressed where a hospital can accommodate and bring in technology and not improve their operating cost, I think you see numbers double or triple in terms of share. And then if we can eliminate the burden for having to get retrained and continuously be engaged with all this training and, and taking, making the whole process complicated, if we can get rid of that element, then I think you'd see another rise in acceptance. So that, that's, again, that's kind of what, what our focus is to say, what have surgeons been trained to do historically and continue to be trained to do? And how do we leverage those basic fundamental skills of surgery, whether it's open technique or laparoscopic technique, and just give them a tool to perform that same, leverage their same training and help build on it. But now there's a digital assistant behind it. So now it should be faster to learn. It will be even more because a young surgeon beginning their career with all this AI technology, they will be operating with a digital assistant who has seen and understood thousands of cases that the surgeon is doing. So can provide that guidance and navigation as they proceed. Interesting. Final question, and I appreciate the time. You're a publicly traded company. How difficult is it to execute on this sort of strategy in a, in a world where everyone wants results every three months or, yeah. or some form of results every three months? Is this something that, and again, you're publicly traded CEO, so you're limited in what you can say, but this would be a lot easier if you were a privately held company. <laughs> how are you working within those confines and how do you yeah. see this playing out? I mean, it, it, is, it is a challenge. But I think it's also an opportunity because I think one piece to, to really help everybody understand is that it's what we do in, in surgical, uh, digital surgery, surgical robotics. It's a very complex area. It's complex from a technology point of view. It's complex from a regulatory point of view. And it's complex from a market and adoption point of view. So all these complexities lead to more of a longer term horizon in value creation for the investor community. And I totally get it. Investor community does not, patients and investor community don't quite go hand in hand. But I think that's what we try to educate and inform the investor community about the complexity involved and what it translates into in terms of time. But at, at the same time, there's pretty high return on it when you're able to get to the other side. So I think helping folks understand the idea of patience is, is kind of something that we do quite a lot, <laughs> explaining the complexities. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Well, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. Anthony Fernando, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate being here and I'm glad. Uh, thanks for having me. 
All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you, Anthony Fernando, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, our Device Talks podcast listeners, for being part of Device Talks. Again, for listening to this podcast, for sharing this podcast, and for helping me put together the agenda for Device Talks West, October 18th and 19th. Go to devicetalks.com to register. Early bird expires uh, mid-August. So don't, don't, don't sleep on that, please. If you're planning to come, come for less. <laughs> Only spend $395. Uh, it's a great deal. So uh, please do connect with us on social media. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. You can find Chris Newmarker there as well. You can find Newmarker as in a new marker. Sean Hooley, the entire team, Kaylee and Brown, we're all on LinkedIn. Connect with us there. Please do subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network if you haven't already. Uh, we'll have great episodes of Boston Scientific Talks, Abbott Talks, and intuitive talks coming your way very soon. Striker talks. I'm recording a new one next week. So lots going on there. Uh, if you subscribe to the device talks podcast network, you won't miss a single episode. So with all that said, I think I've covered just about everything. Thank you for listening to uh, this episode of the device talks weekly podcast. We'll be back next week with uh, a full new markers, newsmakers discussion Chris Newmark will be back and uh, we'll get to introduce someone new to you. So I'm excited about that. All right, folks, have a great day. And thanks again for listening to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast.